Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The longest part of the night rests just in front of the most brilliant part of dawn. Sunrise is impressive, but just before dawn is where all the beauty of a new day rests. In life, it's the darkness just before the dawn that's the hardest part to step into, but that's also where the brilliance is found. And in this new study of 1 Peter, we'll discover the blessings that can come in the darkest nights of our soul. Well, good morning once again. Uh, if you are just now joining us online, welcome to you as well. We are in the second part of a series on 1 Peter. If you're here in-house and you've got those red Bibles in front of you and you want to follow along, it's page 925. That's where I'll be this morning. Uh, and it's the second column. If you're on your phone or whatever, just find 1 Peter. Uh, go there. That'll be where you need to go. But uh, we are studying this, this book and we're going through it chapter by chapter. Today we land on the second part of the first chapter, um, and it's an important part. It's an important part that sets the whole theme, but the overarching theme that we start to see in Peter, this starts at the very beginning of it, and it goes throughout, is there's a new dawn coming. There's a new day coming. New life is coming, and that new life that is coming is important to how we live our lives right now. With that new dawn comes a new people. It comes a new reality. It comes a new way for you to live in this reality. Not just waiting for heaven one day, but actually transforming the way you live, speak, act in this reality. And that's really important for Peter, as we'll see a little bit later today. Because as a people who stand on the other side of the resurrection of Christ, we live with the expectation that there is a resurrection coming for us all. There's a resurrection day where Christ will birth into our hearts new life. He will raise our bodies back from the dead. He will bring us back in all of these ways. But in expectation of that, in anticipation of that, he starts to bring things to life with us right now. We talked about this quote from, um, from Wright last week, the Reverend Wright last week, that when the resurrection happens in Christ, there's a resurrection that takes place in our souls. There's something that happens inside of us that brings all of us back to life where we don't just wait for that final day to come, but it happens right now. So if you're in that season of your life right now where you're like, you know what? Life is just not working out for me. It's not happening for me. Things aren't going my way, all those things. I want you to just add two words to that, right now. Right? It's not happening right now. It's not working out for me right now. It doesn't mean that it won't. It doesn't mean that God's not working something for the resurrection day. It doesn't mean that God's not working something in your life that can come out of whatever you're going through. But it's too early to give up because dawn is coming, a new life is coming for you. And if we kind of take Peter for an example here, and we hold on to the central message that dawn is coming, the other powerful point that comes out of Peter's letter over and over again is a single word that I introduced to you last week. It's T word, right? Triumph. There's victory. There's completion. And so what Peter wants to suggest is that the resurrection in many ways is a triumph not only for God in flesh and Jesus Christ, but a triumph for all of us. That we get to live into that triumph, that completion. And so the way I said it last week, and, and this is kind of what Peter is getting at when he addresses the trials, the, the, uh, the troubles that all of his people are going through in this letter, your temporary trials in life pale in comparison to God's eternal triumph. That's what Peter wants you to know. Whatever you're going through right now, this temporary trial that you're set up in, pales in comparison to the triumph that God is working out, not only for the future, but now in your life. 
And this is the way that we start to orient our lives. And the triumph that comes, and I talked about this a little bit last week in terms of the first section of this book, it brings to you certain things. Peter says, the triumph that comes in your life because of Christ brings new life. The triumph that comes in your life brings you an inheritance. But the inheritance isn't something that just passes away. It's not material goods that just fade. It's imperishable, right? It's held on forever and ever and ever. And when I think about this thing, and, and this is how I approach these first, these first 12 verses, that seems so impractical to me, right? If you're anything like me, it's like, okay, I'm glad you got new life. What does that mean? I'm glad you got this inheritance from God. So? Like, I can't go to the bank and see the numbers rising up, right? It's imperishable. It's not, it's not measurable, any of these things. So what does that mean? It's like receiving a gift and you have no idea what it's like. It's like this gift right here. I received this gift uh, a few years back from my aunt. Does anybody know what this is? Anybody in here? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Okay, don't say it. Don't say it out loud. I had no idea what this gift was, right? And in the world where you Google everything, like I'm hoping for some sort of like label or something that would tell me what it is. or what. I can't do that. All I can do is get on Google and be like round wooden bottom and wooden stakes. I have no idea what to do with this right here. Like, it makes no sense to me. I'm not going to tell. I was thinking about telling you guys what it is. I don't know if I want to tell you at this point. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. It's actually something used to dry out Ziploc bags. And it took missionaries from Africa to tell me that because they needed it. So my gift from my aunt is actually with missionaries in the Central African Republic right now. Um, I, I certainly would have a lot of use for that, but they had more use for it, apparently. Uh, this, is, this is what it is. I, you know, usually my aunt will send me something in the mail like a donation was made in your honor to the Heifer Fund or whatever. That's great. I can figure that out. I can look it up. When this shows up, I have no idea what to do with it. All right, and sometimes when I think about Scripture, in particular this passage right here, that's how I interpret this passage. I'm like, great, I'm glad I have new life, and I'm glad I have an inheritance. I got nothing, right? It's like this gift that you just open up, and you're like, hmm, okay. Well, I'm just going to set that on the shelf right here. We'll see what we do with it one day. Maybe it'll come in handy. I'll scratch my back. I don't know what I'll do with it, but it's there. And, and Peter knows that that's how we feel. And that's why the next part, if you're, if you're following along with me, verse 13, there's an important word that separates this section, verses 13 through 25, from all that's preceded it. It's a single word, therefore. Therefore. Peter says, in light of everything that's just been said, in light of everything that I've given you out, therefore this is what that means. Right? In a practical way, we, we see this word coming up all the time. But if you're reading your Bibles, if you're studying Scripture, if you see a therefore come up, what you need to ask yourself right away is, what is it there for? Anybody ever use that? What is it there for? What, what's that there for? There's something that preceded it that I need to pay attention to. So if you're working through your devotionals and you ever have a passage of Scripture comes up and the first verse says, therefore, stop reading it, open your Bible, and go back a few verses before because you need to know what happened beforehand. And you all know what happened beforehand, so today we're just going to plunge ahead. But this is what Peter says. He says, in light of the new life you have, the inheritance that you have, therefore, that's all there. Let me tell you what you do with it. I'm going to spell it out for you today. I'm going to give you all of that. And Paul does this, Peter does this, John does this. We see this all throughout the New Testament. So verse 1 through 12 tells us what's happening, and then verse 13 starts to introduce what you're going to do with it. This is the application to everything that you've already heard. So therefore, what are we going to do? Number one, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. 
In light of this amazing life that we've received, you're able to activate this transformation of new life and of the inheritance in several ways. And the first way is to prepare your minds. Now, this is an interesting way that Peter starts this passage because as he says, prepare your minds, the word that he used there, it's not the typical word for mind. So it's not just this, this you know, matter, this gray matter that's sitting in the top of your head. It's not just your brain that he's talking about. He's using a different word here. Dionus is the, the word. And it means the faculty of understanding, feeling, or desiring. Therefore, prepare that part of yourself that is oriented towards feeling, desiring, and understanding the world around you. And the desiring part is perhaps the most important part of this understanding because he's going to dig into what our deepest desires are. Peter doesn't want to talk to you about your whole brain. He's not interested in all of that. He just wants you to prepare the part of yourself that desires things in this world that wants things, that loves things in this world, that craves to have certain things in this world. And this is very different from the enlightenment starting point that most of us would associate with. Most of us would be like, okay, prepare your mind. So put all kinds of knowledge in there. Make sure that I read my Bible and interpret this. Make sure that I know the right things to say or know the right things to do. That's what we assume. But Peter's not talking about knowing the right things. He's talking about what's, what's at the core of your very desires in life. And some of us have lived our life under the assumption that those desires are just natural and don't shift. Peter disagrees. Peter would suggest that your desires actually are trained. Your desires can be shifted. Your desires can be disciplined. And so we start to prepare that part of our mind for what God is going to do with the new life. Because he sees us as beings not who just know, right? We use this word homo sapiens, it's the wise man, right? Peter wouldn't understand us as just wise men and women. Peter understands that the core of who we are is a loving being. We are a being who desires things. We're a being who loves things. And so at the core of our identity is this, our desires, our loves. And what you love tells you a lot about where your heart lies in this world and in the world to come. And so Peter locks us in right there. In fact, Chris, uh, I'm going to show you a video in just a minute. There's a Christian philosopher by the name of James K.A. Smith, and he expounds this in a beautiful way. If you ever want to pick up his book, his book is, is called You Are What You Love. But he expounds this understanding from Christianity that it's, you aren't just what you think, you aren't just what you do, but ultimately you exist in this world based on what you love your desires, because your desires prompt every action you have. Your desire prompts every move that you make, every relationship that you form. And so he suggests that we are, we are, who we are is not grounded in what we think about the world, but who we are is grounded in our deepest desires. In fact, let me just let you hear him. Daniel, if you'll play this clip, listen to how James K.A. Smith spells this out for us. One of the core arguments of the book, of course, is that you are what you love, right? It's your desires, it's your hungers, it's your deepest cravings for something ultimate that really define you. That's the first core conviction. The second conviction is more unsettling because it's this, you might not love what you think, right? Because your loves, your longings, your desires, your cravings are shaped and formed and aimed not through what you know. They're not necessarily aimed and calibrated by what your intellect has discovered. They are trained and shaped and oriented and directed 
through the rhythms and rituals and practices that you've been immersed in. So you are learning to love in all kinds of unconscious ways. So if I ask you, what do you love? You might know what the right answer is. That might not be the same as what your habits have actually learned to be pointed towards. The most unsettling part, you may not love what you think. You may not love what you think. Now, there's a couple ways that Professor Smith think, uh, identifies this. The one is you may not be aware of what you love. Right? You may not actually have some sort of cognizant awareness of it. But the, the second part, and perhaps more in line with where he's going, is, and this is where the trouble sort of comes in, is you may think you love this, but your actions and desires, they tell you differently. You may say to someone, I love you, but your actions and your desires defy what you're saying. And so even if you think that's true, your actions betray you. Because we aren't what we think, we are what we do. We are what we love. This is how it works in the world. And so when we think about Christianity and we think about all that Christians have taught throughout the years and how we've oriented our lives and even in this season right now of Lent, it's the habits and actions of our lives that we're intentional about. Intentional about giving up something, intentional about laying aside this time, intentional about setting aside time in the morning for quiet time, whatever the action is, intentional about being in worship on a Sunday morning. These actions start to orient us towards our deepest desires. And we continue to perpetuate those actions over and over and over again. And when we continue to act in a way, what does that become? A habit. And habit eventually erupts in our lives into a desire. We crave it. We want it. And that desire becomes our deepest love. It becomes who we are, in fact. And this is not only where, where James K.A. Smith points us, but it's also where Peter is pointing to us. But as we do, he's saying this preparation of your minds, this deepest part of your cravings and desires, you have to discipline it. That's the next part. He says you need discipline and you need hope beyond yourself. In verse 13, he goes on, prepare your minds for action and then do what? Discipline yourself. Discipline yourself and set all of your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring to you when he's revealed. So we discipline our minds, we focus that habitual action over and over again and practice it, and then we set our hope on something else. And one of the most frustrating things with changing our habits and changing the way we act is that when we hope in ourselves, we're like, I know I'm going to let myself down. I know I'm not going to do this. I know I'm not going to come through. I always fail. And so what Peter says is, yes, you discipline your bodies, you discipline your minds, you act in this new way, but then you set your hope in God who is your strength. You may not be able to do it on your own, but there's a power that comes through our hope in Jesus Christ that changes all of these things. And if you actually want to experience the transformation that comes with this gift of new life and inheritance right here, this is the way we need to do it. This is the, the practices that we need to take up because naturally our habits have been shaped in different ways. You've been shaping your loves since you were born. You've been picking up things. You've been practicing in ways that shape your love every single day. And we need to reshape them. In fact, this is what Peter goes on to do in verse 14. He says, like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. He recognizes you all have desires. We have desires that we're living into. Don't allow yourself to be shaped by those desires, but like obedient children, choose a different path. This reminds me a lot. Anybody ever watch the show Wife Swap? You can, you can admit it. It's okay if you have. Wife Swap. This is a show where two very different families 
switch wives for a few weeks. I don't know how long it is, but they switch wives, right? So you might have like a Wiccan family and a, and a Puritan family, and they're like, we're going to switch wives and see how that works out, you know? It's messed up. It's all kinds of messed up. But it's messed up, why? Because each family is programmed with a different set of desires. And guess what on the, lies on the other side of those desires? Love. But they love different things. They have a different orientation towards love because for their whole lives they've practiced habits. And those habits have gone over and over again and they've developed within them a certain set of desires. And then when you switch the matriarchs of the home, you introduce a new set of actions and desires and then all kinds of stuff breaks loose, right? It becomes chaos in those houses for however long they're in there. And Peter sort of recognizes the same thing. He's like, you have been children to this world. You've been children in this one way, but I'm asking you to become obedient children to your heavenly father. And in so doing, you start to take on the actions that are representative of God. And when you take on those actions, you start to develop new habits. And when you develop new habits, you start to develop new desires. And when you develop those new desires, you develop a new love for the world around you in a different way than anybody else around you. And that's exactly what he wants to do. But there have got to be guidelines, right? There's got to be a way in which we can live in that. There's got to be an outline for how we can develop that and how we can develop these new loves and habits as we participate in them and as we develop them. And Peter's like, yeah, there absolutely is a new guideline. Here it is. Verse 15 and 16. Don't follow those old desires. Instead, do this. Here's what you're to do. As he who called you and himself is holy, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, holiness is a really big word for Methodists, right? If you grew up Methodist, you know this. Holiness is at the core of who we are. But holiness, for a variety of reasons, and some of them which are very good reasons, has also become a bad word, right? How many at a gut level would say, when you hear the word holiness, you're like kind of turned off by that? Anybody turned off by the word? It, it's something, and I grew up in a holiness tradition, and I'm turned off by it uh, when I hear it. Because holiness, in, in my mind, in my body, and maybe in your body as well, is not, is not a beautiful thing. Holiness is equated to haughtiness, right? Is that, I mean, that's fair. That's how we often see it. Holiness is equated to haughtiness. It's like super religious folks, better than, than somebody else, right? Holiness is for the holy rollers, um, I know all about those. I'll talk to, talk to you about it later. But this holiness, the problem with it is that it's focused on superficial external markers of holiness, of a proper life and how you would live that. Am I saying all the right things? Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I saying the right words at the right time and impressing the right people? But for Wesley, the reason that this word was so important and it became so important in our tradition is that holiness was not equated to haughtiness. Holiness is synonymous to being made perfect in love. You are made perfect in love, and when you're made perfect in love, you're able to live into the holiness of life. In fact, look at what Wesley says about this. He says, the loving, the loving of God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and strength, this statement right here implies that no wrong temper, none contrary to love, remains in the soul, that all the thoughts, words, and actions are governed by pure what? Love. Right? The holiness that dwells in our hearts, that rises up in the context of our hearts, is one in which our heart has been overtaken by love. And when our heart has been overtaken by the love of God, we're able to act in this holy way. This is exactly what he says in his plain account of Christian perfection. If a heart is full of love, then what it gives birth to is not haughtiness. Holiness is not equal to haughtiness. Rather, holiness is equal to happiness. 
This is at our core what holiness is about. The holy life is the happy life, and as we live into it more and more, we get to experience that happiness, right? I mean, you know this already. A a life that is overcome with love, that's a happy life. That's a good life. You feel that happiness at your core. You feel that joy deep down inside of you. And so holy is happy. Holy is fulfilling. Holy is separate from the things that harm us and take life. That's true. But holiness is that thing that brings us into a state of ultimate fulfillment in life. To where you can live and work in life in a way that you never have before. You can have new life. To where you don't just walk grudgingly through every single day. And this is the life It takes practice, it takes discipline, and it takes habitual practice. It takes us living into that every single day. Because all of us in this room, it doesn't matter what our background is, we have desires shaped in different ways. And those desires tell us to love other things and direct us in love of other things. But God gives us all of these sort of habits to take on, these holy habits to live into. And it's kind of like pouring mold or pouring concrete into a mold. Right? If you just pour concrete on the ground outside, what's going to happen? It's just going to fall into a blob, right? It's useless. It, I mean, it's just there. And, and years later, you're going to come out and you're going to be like, what is that? Why is this giant mold of a rock or whatever this is here? But if you put a mold around it, well, that changes everything, doesn't it? Right? If you put a board up on the side of that, some of you walked in on the benefits of this earlier today, you can start to create something that's useful. You've sort of mold around it. You can create beauty. You can create something brand new. And this is what happens with the holy habits of our lives. It's like a mold that sort of forms around us. And this is what happens when we become followers of Christ. We're living into a mold with new practices. And those new practices form these new desires. And they create something beautiful of our lives. Followers of Christ, as I would suggest, it enter when they come into relationship with God, they enter into this process of formation of being formed by something else and that will ultimately lead into our grand transformation this will be the thing that changes all of your life of everything you are so the question is what forms are you pouring your life into every day what are the forms that you are choosing to pour your life into another way of saying this what are the habits what are the practices of your life that would be reorienting your desires It will be helping you to discover new desires and to live into those new desires. Because each one of these habits will reshape your actions. And each one of those actions will form into habits. And each one of those habits will form into desires which we lead to new love. If you want to be shaped by new love, then you have to start with new actions that lead to these habits. So, you have to be intentional with the forms that you go. And for some of you, this morning is one of those forms, right? For some of you, the ability to sit in this space with other brothers and sisters, this is a form that you've chosen to live into. It's odd. Not everybody's doing it. Some other people are enjoying an extra hour of sleep, even though we have sacrificed that and gotten up early, right? I mean, it's a strange form that we'll live into in order to reorient ours. The intentionality for some of you of a Sabbath, of doing nothing one day out of the week. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I'm just going to observe this Sabbath life. It could be your morning devotions. It could be scripture reading, prayer, fasting, tithing, serving in the local church. Any of these things are forms that we enter into. And every time we slap one of those things down in our lives, we create the mold. We create the outline to the mold of what God is wanting to do. And you don't don't have to take my word. You don't have to take Wesley's word. Look at what Peter says here. 
Peter, as he's wrapping this up in verse 22, you can skip on down there. He says, now that you have purified yourself by obedience to the truth so that you have genuine mutual love, love one another deeply from the heart. He says, once you do this, once you have this obedience grounded around you and you've been obedient to the truth in this way, your life will be filled with love and you can grow in your love for each other. Your holiness, your obedience, all of those things, the greatest commandment in the world, being obedient to that, love God and love others, will lead you ultimately to the best way that you can love one another. And here's, here's the beautiful part about it. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where you question whether or not what your action is is the most loving action. But if we will live into this, we will actually be loving one another. And sometimes it's hard to know what the loving action is. Sometimes it's difficult to say, well, if I do this, then this means this, and this means this, and I'm not sure if that's the most loving thing to do. But as we live into the habits that form the Christian life, we start to discover, oh, that is the most loving thing. We are actually loving one another. But, but this morning, let me just finish it out here. Do your habits demonstrate that? Do your habits communicate that? Do your habits help you live into that? Have you taken up in your life spiritual practices that will enable you to reshape every desire that you have in your life? Or are you just allowing other things to shape those desires, other ways that you can go? If you live a life in obedience to the truth, you develop this mutual love for one another, for God. And now Peter says, just keep doing it. Live into those habits every single day. Allow those habits to shape you, reshape you, and form the desires of your hearts. And then he closes out by this. He says, look, you have been born anew. He reminds us of the new life once again. You have been born anew. But when you're born, this is what you're born of. You're not born of perishable seed. You're not born of something that's breaking away even though you feel it in your bodies. You are born of something that is imperishable. And that imperishable comes to us through the living and enduring Word of God. And Peter's not talking about there the Bible, right? He's not saying the Word of God, the Bible. He's talking to you about Jesus Christ. This comes to you just as John said in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, this new life you have, it comes through Jesus Christ and the life that he lived. Jesus sets that pattern for us of holiness. The way he lived his life. The way he died his death. The things that he taught. If you will live and act into those things, you'll be able to live into that same type of life. And Jesus, in fact, makes this very clear for us. He's like, I don't want you just to hear what I say. I want you to practice what I say. There's this beautiful part at the end, and I've never quite read it this way until this week, but the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 7, Jesus has one final thing he wants to say. And I kind of think of it like, you know, when the preacher lines up at the back of the church and everybody's walking out and they're like, great sermon today, pastor. Good sermon. I like that. That was good. Great job. You know, I feel like Jesus was probably like finished everything he did. He got to the back of the church and people started saying that. And Jesus was like, wait, wait, just stop. Stop. Everybody just stop. Stop. Listen. Everyone who hears what I just said and puts these words into action or acts on them, that person is like a wise one who built his house on the rock. He's like, but every one of you who comes through here, hears what I said, but does not act on them. Just says that's a great sermon, pastor. The one who doesn't act on them You'll be like the person who built your house on the sand. The winds will come, the sea will rise, and it'll blow your house away. The most important thing, Jesus says, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, all the things he said, and he said a lot of things, 
I don't want you to hear it. I don't want you to quote it. I want you to do it. I want you to act on those things. Because when you act on those things, those actions become habits, and those habits become desires, and those desires become your deepest longings and love in life. If you want to reshape your life, you do those things. You don't talk about them. You don't quote them. You do them. And this is the type of reality that's waiting for us. We have new life. We have an inheritance. And we have actions that are shaped after the holiness of God that will enable us to live into those. So do that. Today, when we leave, I don't want you to tell me it was a good job, Pastor. I mean, I don't want you to tell me it was a bad job either, but when you leave today, I want you to think about the action that needs to change in your life. I want you to think about the habit that needs to change in your life because you recognize and you see that there's an action you're performing. I may think I love this, but because I'm doing this, guess what? I don't really love that. It's something that I'm doing in life that defies everything I think about what I love. And today I need to change that. Today I need to pick up something different, a different action, a different habit, and to go forth into that. The life that Christ purchased for us through his death and resurrection, the life that overcame all sin, hell, death, and the grave, is a life that by the love of God enables you to love God and to love others fully. So let's not think about that today. Let's do it. Would you stand with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your love that is so generous in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that it's not a love in word, but it is truly the deepest form of love, one that acts, and the one that acts on our behalf over and over again, and one that invites us not to just be recipients of that love, but to be participants in that love. To be ones who act on that love wherever we go. And so as we go, I ask God that you would fill our hearts and minds with your truth to enable us to perceive where we should be acting in love, how we should be acting in love. The Spirit of God, give us the strength to do that and our minds and our wills are weak. And we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.